Okay, welcome and thank you very much for coming. I'm Joan Rodman Gulianos. I'm the director of the Writer at Work series of the Gallup Division, and I want to uh, welcome you also on behalf of Dean London, who could not be here um, this evening. We're very pleased tonight to be co-sponsoring this event with Penn, the only international organization of literary writers uh, in the world. Among Penn's many crucial functions are its fight against censorship, its symposia, conversations, and readings in five cities in the United States, and its new project, which syndicates fiction to 10 major papers across the country. Last year, around this time uh, in April, the Writer at Work series, and I think some of you were here, presented a panel on writing and healing in which we discuss not only the act of writing, but some of its effects. Tonight, having Malcolm Cowley with us, who at 85 years old to continues to produce his work, in particular his memoirs, and having his son Robert Cowley, who will speak of his father's work and its relation to his own, will I suspect give us a sense of how writing and in particular, the memoir serves to link us to other generations, other times, other people. Since his 80th birthday, Malcolm Cowley, poet, reviewer, critic, has written three books. I think that would put some of us to shame here tonight, including his extraordinary memoir, The View from 80. And he currently is working on an edition of his correspondence with Kenneth Burke, his old school friend that covers 60 years, and a memoir uh, also of the late 1930s. He stands as an example of the unique growth and productivity that some of us hopefully will also be able to attain in later years. Robert Cowley is senior editor at Random House the author of Rulers of Britain, and numerous articles and literary interviews. He currently is working on a book about the Western Front during World War I and his journeys along it, especially to some of the places his father had been. I'd like now to introduce you to Robert Cowley. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Yes. The subject of our two talks tonight is the memoir. And I'm going to comment in particular not so much on the form, but on some thoughts that I have about it. I'd like to talk about the experience of being a character in a memoir uh, and of living around of memoirs and yes, of living with a memoirist, uh, namely my own father. Uh, but I'd also like to talk about how my father's memories have at least once led me on a search for their origins. I sometimes have the feeling that I've spent much of my life living around one memoir or another. Memoirs are, after all, the literary person's habit. Whether they find their way into print or not, we are constantly taking mental notes, casual observations, 
have a way of turning into not-so-casual sentences and paragraphs. In the beginning, I suppose, we think of our lives as novels, and more often as not, and perhaps, uh, and I hope so, that, that, that they remain unwritten ones. Later on, those novels have a way of turning away from fiction. The vivid scenes are still there. Uh, we still create characters, though now we give them real names. But we have largely given up the option of determining outcomes. The question is now, rather, which cutoff date is most appropriate? In memoirs, even our mental ones, scores may be settled, but wishes can rarely be fulfilled. Does all of this imply a certain feeling of arrogance that what we have observed really is important? Well, that goes without saying. If the literary person didn't have this conviction, he or she wouldn't be a writer. Does all this imply, too, that the facts and scenes that we have set down are necessarily the truth just because we have put them in a memoir? Hardly. The question is not so much what is true as what is truly relevant. Establishing the correct version of a story should be the historian's, and yes, the lawyer's concern, not the memoirist's. I think of various events that my father has written about in which I have witnessed from the wings, as it were, that I have sometimes seen these events differently from the way he has set them down doesn't invalidate our joint memories in the least. After all, children never see the same thing as adults or their parents. I'll start almost at the beginning, namely with one of my earliest memories. What, for instance, did my father's trip in 1937 to Loyalist Spain mean to me? I was, what, two and a half years old? Unless you're a disciple of primal scream therapy and believe that you can ultimately conjure up the moment of your birth, you are not generally supposed to have memories that go much earlier than your third or fourth year. I can only explain mine as having been triggered by the summer-long absence of a parent. I spent the summer in Pennsylvania, in the same house where my father had been born. While I was being taken to the brass bedstead of uh, where my grandmother lay dying, my father was being taken to loyalist trenches outside of Madrid and seeing shell-shocked members of the Abraham Lincoln Battalion. I remember, too, one gray rainy day after he had returned, being driven back to Connecticut where we lived in a Plymouth convertible with a rumble seat. I'll always remember that rumble seat. And stopping in the middle 
of a town somewhere in Pennsylvania to stare down at a clear stream filled with immense trout. What did a child's skewed and selective vision of those giant fish have to do with the opening battles of the Second World War that my father was writing about in the New Republic? Little enough, I suppose, and yet, if I were ever to write my own memoir, would I leave those fish out? What I saw that summer was far different from what my father had experienced. But in the end, our lives would be manipulated by the same forces. Other memories that's true may have more clear-cut meaning. Take Ernest Hemingway. My father was writing an article about him for life, and we had all gone down to Cuba. I think I was 12 by then. Hemingway took us out in his fishing boat, the Pilar. Some miles offshore, the boat began to dip up and down amid huge swells. I became violently seasick and threw up. Hemingway turned from the wheel, casually and without annoyance, took off his jersey, stooped to wipe up the mess, and threw the garment over the side. I'm sure that's not what my father remembers about that day. <laughs> if I had been in his place, I probably would have remembered catching a barracuda, which he did. Some of my memories of my memoirist, memoirist father made a poignant comment, I think, on the main event that he had witnessed. There was the summer of 1948 when he testified at the Hiss trial for the defense. I really have little idea of my father's ordeal on the witness stand beyond what I have read and details he's told me. For instance, that he was bullied unmercifully about his deafness by the prosecutor. I do remember two things. The first was Eric Severide on the CVS evening radio news saying, today a man named Malcolm Cowley testified. A man named Malcolm Cowley. I had never quite thought of my father in that way. <laughs> the other memory was not so benign. The next morning I was riding on my bike past a neighboring farm when two boys I knew well rose up from some bushes and ran after me, hurling stones and shouting, Commie! Commie! No wonder both of us have more than a slight distaste for that period. But let me return to what I was saying earlier. Even when the event that two or more people contemplate is the same, their perceptions of it rarely are. Have you ever looked at pictures of a wedding taken by various photographers? Are they really shots of the same ceremony? People will always be saying, that's not the way it was. That's not the way it happened. Think about the current ruckus between Mayor Koch and Governor Cuomo, both newly minted memoirists about their versions of the same meeting at which somebody did or did not promise something. Will we ever know the truth? 
and does it really matter? And yet, for all their faults, who can deny the importance of memoirs? In a conversation we had last spring, my father said to me, histories by a member of the next generation are always somewhat false and from the outside. There is this whole mass of memories which nobody can reconstruct. You have to have lived them. The memoir is the best defense we have. Whatever its faults, it usually manages to give a feeling about a time, or at least a clue to what people were feeling that you can't find elsewhere. That can be much more valuable than, those, than the facts those memoirists relate. I don't deny, for instance, the, use, the usefulness of the information that the new historians with their computers have derived from, say, English parish registers of the 17th century. Computers can reveal the average age when people married or died. But what can they tell us about the weddings themselves or the funerals? Can a computer ever convey the languid joy of a June evening or on a larger scale the shared mood that led a generation to slaughter in the First World War? That is where memoirs come in. I mention the First World War for a reason. Last summer, while researching that longer project, which Mrs. Guliano spoke about, the Western Front, I went to the sector where my father had served for six months in 1917. People frequently go back to the places where their ancestors came from. I wanted to see instead the place where my own father had spent some of the most formative months of his life. This would turn out to be not only a journey into my father's past, but into one of the events that has, in a real way, shaped my own life. You know, living in a memoir can sometimes be serious business. My father was not quite 19 in 1917 and was still a student at Harvard when he joined the American Field Service as an ambulance driver. But when he arrived in France, so he tells me, he discovered that there were more ambulance drivers than there were ambulances. Instead, he ended up driving munitions trucks for the French army. He found himself in a sector called the Chemin de Dame. The Chemin de Dame is a long, steep ridge 600 feet high above the valley of the Aisne River. The grandness of the views make it seem much higher. The Chemin de Dame takes its name from the narrow road that runs along the top of the ridge, the Ladies Road. It was built by one of the French kings to connect his chateau with those of some of his mistresses. 
I would drive along that road and down along the river with the tape recorder on the seat next to me, listening to my father's voice. Sometimes he might be talking about German dugouts, which the French had taken at vast cost. The German dugouts were neat and furnished for long residence. I'm quoting from that tape now. It was as if they were building a German village. Their dugouts were built on the base of a limestone cliff where no shells could hit. After some searching, I found those dugouts. They look like caves now, and a farmer grows mushrooms in them. But a little German cemetery, which my father also described, had long since been removed. He told me how the young Americans, American volunteers had gone into that cemetery in 1917, ripped up crosses, and mailed them home as souvenirs. Sometimes, too, my father might be talking on that tape recorder about the river. The Aisne I remember as a beautiful river, so green the water, green and clear. I never did go back. If he had, he would have found a river, still beautiful but now hopelessly muddy. There is one memory in particular that he had first described to me when I was a boy, a memory of his which had become so real that at times I could almost imagine that it had happened to me. This is the way he tells it in Exile's Return. On a July evening at dusk, I remember halting in the courtyard of a half-ruined chateau through which zigzagged the trenches held by the Germans before their retreat, two miles northward to stronger positions. Shells were harmlessly rumbling overhead. The German and the French heavy batteries three miles behind their respective lines were shelling each other. Here, in the empty courtyard between them, it was as if we were underneath a freight yard where heavy trains were being shunted back and forth. We looked indifferently at the lake, now empty of swans, and the formal statues chipped by machine gun fire and talked in quiet voices about Mallarmé, the Russian ballet, the respective virtues of two college magazines. On the steps of the chateau, in the last dim sunlight, a red-faced boy from Harvard was studying Russian out of a French textbook. Four other gentlemen volunteers were rolling dice on an outspread blanket. A French artillery brigade on a hillside nearby, rapid-firing 75s, was laying down a barrage. The guns flashed like fireflies among the trees. I was determined to find that ruined chateau, if anything, in fact, was left of it. One bright, hot Sunday morning in July last year, another July, I found the place. 
I first came on some uh, uh, wrought iron gates, padlocked shut. I recognized them from an old guidebook photograph. The chateau was called the Chateau de Sapir and had been built in the 16th century. It must have been an extraordinary place. Then, a few hundred yards beyond, at the edge of the village of Soupir, I parked my car. Below me was a great cornfield, which stretched almost to the river. Freestanding in the middle of all that corn was a huge ornamental gateway, three arches surmounted by stone lions. I started down the hill, gingerly, trying not to trample the corn. A small dog came out of a house nearby and began to yap ferociously. The man followed it. I wanted to say, my father was down there 66 years ago. Mon père était, mon père était, but my French suddenly deserted me. The man simply shook a finger in my direction and returned to the house. I stood for a moment more, looking at those gates and at a huge brick wall, perhaps a mile long and mysteriously still intact, that surrounded the great field. That wall, the iron gates, and the lion arches and the corn were all that remained of the Chateau de Soupir. And yet, they were enough to fix a memory. I only wish that my father had been with me then. There is one thing else that survives, and I will read it to you now. It is my father's poem. Chateau du Sapir, written in 1917. Jean tells me that the senator came here to see his mistresses with a commotion at the door. The servant, servants ushered him, Jean says, through velvets and mahoganies to where the odalisque was set, the queen pro tempore Yvette an 18th century chateau remodeled to his Lydian taste, painted and gilt fortissimo. The Germans, grown sardonical, had used a bust of Cicero as a shield for a machine gun nest at one end of the banquet hall. The trenches run diagonally across the gardens and the lawns, and jagged wire from tree to tree. The lake is desolate of swans. In tortured immobility, the deities of stone or bronze abide each new catastrophe. Phantasmagorical at nights, yellow and white and amethyst, the star shells the very lights hiss upward, brighten and persist until a tidal wave of mist rolls over us 
and makes us seem the drowned creatures in a dream. Ghost among earlier ghosts, Yvette, the tight skirt raised above her knees, beckons her lover en filette, then nymph-like flits among the trees, while he, beard streaming in the breeze, pants after her, a portly satyr, his goat feet shod in patent leather. The mist creeps up riverward. A fox barks underneath a blasted tree. An enemy machine gun mocks this antebellum coca tree and then falls silent while a bronze silenus, patron of these lawns, lies riddled like a pepper box. Well, shall I plunge right into my little paper? <laughs> I thought I played, I hate to criticize, Rob. <laughs> I played perhaps too much part in his writing about memoirs. Memoirs I have written for a long time, but I've written other things too. And uh, some of the things he said just sort of stole away things that I had planned to say. <laughs> I want to offer a defense of writing memoirs and autobiographies. There is a distinction between those two literary modes or genres, though they often blend into each other. A memoir, usually plural, is a narrative composed from personal experience. So Webster says. Most often the narrative deals with something outside oneself, such as events that one has witnessed or characters who have played a part in one's day. Autobiography is a more exacting mode and hence is less widely practiced. It is defined by the American Heritage Dictionary as the story of a person's life written by himself. Simple enough. Both forms are presented as true accounts of what happened. They are both comparatively simple to fictionize, a tempting procedure that is often a rewarding one. A very large portion of 20th century literature, including some of its greatest novels, is in essence memoiristic. Indeed, the distinction between nonfiction and fiction 
is hard to maintain in the case of literary works. Both the memoirists and the novelists are trying to impose a shape on events. Both are telling stories. Both have as material their personal experience and knowledge. In other words, the things they remember. The difference here is that the novelist has a great deal more freedom in choosing things to represent. And even the freedom to recount what never happened. Now, when reading Stephen Hero, after reading a portrait of a portrait of the artist as a young man, one notes how Joyce, that superb architect, had risen above facts when rewriting the earlier manuscript. But he did not depart from the essential truth about himself. And a portrait, besides its place in the history of fiction, is also among the lasting autobiographies. Remembrance of things past is an autobiography on a vaster scale, with an abundance of invented episodes and a change of sex. It is also the greatest novel of our century. Sometimes the difference between nonfiction and fiction seems to be chiefly a matter of pronouns. The memoirist says I or we. The novelist more often says he or she. And when he does speak in the first person, he is usually presenting the thoughts and deeds of an invented character. But rules about the use of pronouns are riddled with exceptions. Two of the best American autobiographies, You Shan't by Conrad Aiken and The Education of Henry Adams, are narratives in the third person. Aiken refers to himself as D or Demarest while Adams is always he. In rereading the education, one cannot fa fail to note that important episodes in Adams's life, as notably his marriage, are totally omitted from the narrative. Each event that he recounts is true, so far as he could make it so, but he has made a selection among true events in order to give the book a novelistic form. It can indeed be read as a novel, a better one, incidentally, than Dreiser's purported novel, <coughs> The Genius, which also tries to tell what really happened. The special quality of a memoiristic book is partly determined by the period of the author's life 
at which the book was written. Many such books are written before the author has accumulated a sufficient fund of experience and knowledge. One result is that many first novels, including most of those that remain in manuscript after being rejected by 20 publishers, might be called the education of and you supply the young author's name. <laughs> a few of them have a vividness and immediacy that might have been lost. The author had waited a few more years to write them. A famous example is Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. John Glasgow's Memoirs of Montparnasse was written before the author was 21, though it wasn't published until long afterward. It deserves to be read at last and recognized as the most dramatic of the many narratives that deal with Paris's pilgrims of art. But these two books are notable exceptions to a general rule namely that most memoirs or memoiristic novels are written too soon. The story they tell, that they have to tell, the author having too little experience to tell another, is his progress over a few years from being a mere twerp to being an accomplished oaf. <laughs> <laughs> Memoirs written in middle age deserve and are likely to find more readers since the author has by then accumulated a richer store of, of memories. He doesn't have to choose among them deliberately. He may simply probe into his unconscious. Whatever lives there vividly will be what he needs, and perhaps what the world needs. <clears throat> the middle-aged author may also have achieved a higher degree of self-awareness. And this is one of the standards, perhaps the central standard, by which memoirs should be judged. At the same time, he retains enough animal vitality to work hard and long at his chosen task. Animal vitality is one of the gifts that an old man may find he has mislaid. <laughs> I have to make this observation when speaking of memoirs written in age, which is a subject close to my present concern. I have been a mem memoirist, as Rob noted, almost from the beginning. Even my first book of poems, Blue Juniata, was a memoir of sorts. My first prose book, Exile's Return, 
started out to be a personal memoir, though later in the course of writing and revision, became something else, something close to a collective novel about members of my generation. I wish now that I could write again with the same confident swagger. Having continued in the field for more than 50 years, I find that the aged man and woman writing memoirs is burdened with special handicaps, among which the mere lack of energy is not the greatest. A worse affliction is that some of one's memories are not as sharp or as richly detailed as they were when one was a mere septuagenarian. <laughs> But the richness of detail can be recaptured if one perseveres. There are letters and daybooks to consult and tunes that echo in one's head, each of them suggesting an occasion. And meanwhile, one finds that the older memoirists has a few real and great advantages over his younger rivals. Perhaps the greatest is that he knows exactly what he wants to do, which is to sweep away the rubbish that has accumulated over the years and to find beneath it his or her real shape and story. In the course of my own search for and through and under memories, I have looked for what Kenneth Burke, my oldest friend, calls watershed moments. That is, the scenes or episodes after which one's thoughts flow in a different direction. One of those moments occurred when I was 14 years old. I stood alone on the east bank of the Mississippi at Quincy, Illinois, where my grandmother lived. The river was a mile wide, and from bank to bank its current moved past me solidly and relentlessly. A hundred yards from shore, a water-soaked log bobbed up and down while being carried onward. The scene haunted me. I don't know why. And later I dreamed about it. In the dream I had become the water-soaked log. But somehow the log had eyes to observe what happened on the bank as it was borne along. Still later, much later, I came to feel that what I had found was a guiding metaphor. The river was history, and we were all involved in it as objects on the relentlessly moving surface. It would never turn back. We, our only freedom was to become more conscious 
of the spectacle as it unrolled. That was an underlying perception, and there were others. My father was a religious man, a Swedenborgian with an utter faith in the wisdom of divine providence. For him, everything that happened was part of God's plan. I accepted that faith for a time, as children do, then gradually abandoned it. In part and instinctively, I replaced it with another faith, this time in nature or life or the human community. I wasn't sure what to call it. At any rate, there was some force outside ourselves, or so I felt, that would take care of things in its own secret and dilatory fashion. It was no use being vastly ambitious for one's person. If there were virtues inside us, they would come out over the years and the world would recognize them. We pass for what we are, Emerson said. If there was little inside, we had better accept the situation and live with it. Not so long ago, as one comes to reckon time, I used to hear college students asking, who am I? They were genuinely distressed in those days about the question of their personal identities. I listened to them with sympathy, but also with a measure of disdain. When I was your age, I wanted to tell them, but didn't. I knew damned well whom I was. <laughs> now I am not so certain. At 85, the question of identity comes back to me, if in a slightly different form. Who was I? <laughs> and the answer isn't always what I expected to find. As late as 1930, I had regarded myself as one representative of a new generation in American letters, one person among many, but otherwise as a young man without special qualities. I was not a leader, not an exhorter, not an actor in the great events of our time, but chiefly an observer and recorder. I listened and remembered without trying to enforce my opinions on others. There is the possibility, however, that I was a more unusual character than I suspected at the time. I wrote of myself in the foreword to a recent book, The Dream of the Golden Mountains. And that author, that observer who was trying to be candid about himself, what sort of person was he in 1930? If one looks back at him, he seems to be less typical 
even of his own age group than he once fancied himself to be. He was still a country boy after spending most of his life in cities. He had a farmer's blunt hands. Look at the hands if you get a chance. That man of elegant letters John Peel Bishop wrote to his Princeton friend Edmund Wilson. The plowboy of the Western world who has been to Paris. The plowboy admitted that he was awkward, credulous, either rash or exuberant at moments, and usually persistent, or would you call it stubborn. He never forgot that he came of people without pretensions, not quite members of the respectable middle class. He was slow of speech and had a farmer's large silences. Though he was not slow-witted, people were fooled sometimes. He mentally revised his words, often until the moment had passed to utter them. Perhaps one might call him a wordsmith, essentially, working at his forge and anvil devoted to the craft of hammering his thoughts into what he hoped would be lasting shapes. That was Malcolm Cowley in 1930, so far as his character can be reconstructed from memory, and where memory fails, from notebooks and letters supplemented by the recollections of surviving friends. I feel now that the character hasn't changed in essence, though there would be other watershed moments in later years. One of them occurred in the spring of 1942, and I described it briefly in a fairly recent book and I worked at the writer's trade. The background of the moment has to be explained. A week before Pearl Harbor, Archie McLeish had me come to Washington and join his newly formed government agency, the Office of Facts and Figures. That was to be an unhappy and enlightening experience. The OFF, sad acronym, was a short-lived agency soon to be absorbed into the Office of War Information. Staffed with writers and editors, Staffed with writers and editors, all eager to play a part in the war effort, it was regarded by congressmen as a haven for impractical people with dangerous opinions. The Dyes Committee went to work on it. 
Since I had once permitted my name to be used on the letterheads of a great many radical organizations, I was chosen from the staff as the most vulnerable target. For two months or more, I was presented in almost every issue of the Congressional we re Record as a horrible example. Then I resigned in order to stop the attacks and let the OFF get on with its work. By the 1st of April, I was back in Connecticut, writing book reviews for the New Republic and spading up my garden. I made a number of resolutions between spadefuls of cold brown earth. Not to join anything in the future. <laughs> Not to write statements. Not to sign statements written by others. Not to let my name appear on letterheads. Not to attend meetings, much less take the chair as I had often done in the past. Not, I grunted, stepping hard on the spade. Not, not. I remembered something that Whitaker Chambers had said to me in 1940. The counter-revolutionary purge is still to come. After those months in Washington, I was ready to believe him on that point. Vaguely, I foresaw the inquisitions of the McCarthy years and was preparing to survive them in obscurity as regards political issues, but with self-respect, not beating my breast or turning informer. I felt politically amputated, emasculated, but then I had never been happy among politicians. Now, with a sense of release and opportunity, I could get back to my proper field of interest, which was the literary history of the years through which I had lived. The search for one's own past is a fascinating occupation, and one that be <coughs> seems most appropriate for older memoirists. It is one of the privileges that partly compensates for his handicaps. In earlier years, the older memoirist had been too busy living to think much about himself. But now at last he has an opportunity, if not always the time, to discover the shape of his life. He has the perspective of years in which important events continue to stand out while much that is trivial fades into the background. He may have acquired the useful feeling that he is lived in history. Memoirs are not 
history, by the way. I read a volume partly of reminiscences today by a man who had lived through 25 years, from 1925 to 1950. And I thought to myself, I wish to God he'd tell me what he felt. That would be firsthand. That would be a minor revelation, but a, a revelation still. Instead, he made, I must say, very intelligent generalities about those years, and that wasn't what I wanted. Memoirs are not discursive writing. The memoirist is a figure in history, but he isn't writing history. Now, all these are advantages enjoyed by the older memoirist, if he can make the most of them. Also, he is free to write with perfect candor, remembering, as he should do at every moment, that an old person has nothing to lose by telling the truth. Every human life is a drama, brief or prolonged, commonplace or amazing, and different in all its details, or almost all, from every other human life. The difference, however, is not complete. If the outlines of an individual drama have been laid bare, if the protagonist has, been, has truly depicted himself, then others will recognize their own features in the portrait. Every man, every woman is not only a person, but is also a representative of the age in which he has lived. An old man can cite that principle as an ultimate justification for seeking a shape in his own life. And so I continue to probe in my memories. Erect in an armchair or sprawled on a couch, I try to read the book of my life. It was set in type long ago by an apprentice with errors great and small. Later it was left outdoors to be sunned on and rained on. Many of the words are blurred and it is hard for me to decipher them. Whole pages, whole chapters, have been torn from the binding and mislaid. I strain to reconstruct those pages, often finding that I would prefer to forget them, but still I persevere. 
This occupation carried on in silence, not even my eyes moving as they turn an imaginary page, absorbs me more than the reading of any published book. When I come to the last chapter, what shall I have found? A drama, an essay, a novel, or even a sequence of novels. In any case, I shall have read a story in still unwritten words, a story that is long, apparently confused, but that still has a beginning, middle, and end, ordained by nature or biology. I shall have discovered or unveiled a shape in time. I shall have revealed to myself a person who is possibly the real me. But what if that person should prove to be only a bag stuffed with straw and having painted on features instead of a face? In that case, it will serve to frighten away the blackbirds from my secret garden. Thank you. I, th I think you'll agree with me. Uh, <laughs> I think you'll agree with me that we in our culture should hear more from our octogenarians <laughs> and especially from Mr. Colley and I hope for us all that we shall have the same powers uh, when we're his age, if we hopefully get there, that, that he has. I know many of you would like to ask questions, so uh, I'll turn the mic over to him. Thank well, you. You'll have to feed can you, and Rob will, or I, yeah, I can help you. too. Okay. Questions over there? Yeah. Reader, if you want, Mr. Colley, back in the 30s, I was uh, more than a little surprised and a little disappointed that you let the congressman from Texas, the Martin Dyes, whom I don't think more than one in ten knows today, the forerunner of Joe McCarthy, frighten you from political <laughs> activity, prevent you from putting your name on a statement about things that you believe in. You know, what was that? Not I'm surprised that you let Martin Dyes prevent you from political activity to frighten you. Ah, I wasn't <laughs> frightened. I, I was repelled. The political uh, activity was... Uh, finally seemed to be distasteful to me, and I found myself in put in false positions by having let my name be used on letterhead. So I said I'm going to get out of this business completely, and I did get out. And <coughs> <coughs> 
with a sense of relief, but also I'm going to tell you with a sense of being somehow politically amputated and even emasculated. Well, it's what I had to do, and I lived through the McCarthy era without once beating my breast or without once giving names or anything, even testifying, just in obscurity, but in respectable obscurity. <laughs> other questions? Are there any other questions? Uh, yeah, back there. Yes. Pardon my, you have does a, you're the, a little bit of can he, hearing problem. Yeah. Does the writer, can you hear me on the? Yeah, you hear, I, I, I think the, you. the question had to do with what role should politics play in a, in a writer's existence and, and in a writer's existence now? And what about the pen club? What do you feel about the pen activity what of the pen the club? What? Pen club. Uh, P E N. Well, what part? Now, you see, get, you're getting away from memoirs into another field entirely, which is fascinating, which was the subject of enormous arguments during the 1930s. I think that everyone should end by finding what is inside him and letting that be expressed. If what is inside him is essentially political interest, or essentially, I should, should say, public interest, then let him exercise public interest and not try at the same time to be an imaginative writer. And if what is inside him is the literary feeling, then it is better to go ahead and be a writer with only a, I was going to say tangential, but that isn't quite the, the right thing. He should retain a real consciousness of politics. Any man who lives in this world of ours and 
tries to remain completely unconscious of political issues is denying and cheapening and reducing himself. And yet he has to have this strength to say, if he is essentially a writer, no, I will abstain at this moment. Okay, are there other questions? Um, Nona Belagian. <coughs> oh, no. <laughs> I think that when uh, when brings up the question of politics versus a writer's role in society as a writer, I look at Malcolm Cowley and I say to myself, what a tremendous social and literary uh, contribution he has made. You look around nowadays and you don't see a Malcolm Cowley. You don't see someone who has, within his own period, uh, recognized worthwhile talents, evaluated them, and kept them alive. I don't see anyone like that today, whether they are political, literary, or social, or anything. And I think that this is perhaps an aspect Mr. Cowley himself has not pointed out to us tonight. Thank you. Um, Nona Balakian, I think many people will know, she's an editor from the New York Times Book Review and a very fine critic. And she was saying, Mr. Cowley, that uh, one aspect which you haven't pointed out very much tonight about yourself is how you have helped to recognize and develop other talent. And she does not see anyone like yourself nowadays. There's no one who seems to be doing this kind of thing. Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, I can't boast about myself because it seems to me that Essentially, I have led a fairly easy life. That is, slaving away at my desk and for years and years in my garden, but otherwise without, without great hardships. So I, th I think our society has been so rich that it has taken care practically of, not of everybody, because we know there are millions who aren't taken care of, but on the other hand, with it has taken care of everybody who was judged to have something to contribute to society. Now, the little distinction I had, such as it was, that except for the long job on the New Republic, which actually ran from 1930 to 1940, I have been my own man. I have taken jobs and I have turned jobs down. I have been a professor. Oh, I love that. The rule was that I would take a professorship 
but for no no more, never any more than one semester every other year, or sometimes a quarter. And it was very funny that I got promoted in that process. <laughs> when I started out, I'd be listed in the catalog as a visiting lecturer. Then after a while, I became a visiting professor. Then after a few more years, I became a visiting distinguished professor. <laughs> I wondered why in God's name these promotions? Well, it was because I had dickered for salary, and in order to pay me a bigger salary, they had to give me a bigger title. <laughs> But I wondered if I wouldn't someday be visiting honorary scholar in residence or something like that. A, long, a good long title. But in a way, I was proud of this business of being a freelance, not in debt or not greatly indebted to anyone. And I don't think there are very many at the present time, especially not in the field of, of uh, literary criticism and memoirs. There's a question over there. My question is Mr. Robert Well, first place that brook I remember, as I said, from two and a half years old. I, uh, my father has the name of the town in Pennsylvania. I wouldn't have remembered that at that age. Oh. The, the whole thing, I think it's again the thing of not reading memoirs as strict history. Read them, read them the way you'd read a novel. I was thinking, for instance, the, oh, in my researches uh, a little while ago, I'd written to a, an archivist at the Imperial War Museum in London, and I'd mentioned something. And in, in connection with this, I also mentioned Robert Graves' Goodbye to All That, which is, I consider, one of the great memoirs of uh, the century. And the uh, m man uh, 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 wrote back, he said, my dear Mr. Cowley, I hope you won't take uh, Graves as strict history. Uh, and, uh, uh, and went on in that vein. Well, hell with him. That book is a great book. Uh, yes, there are things that uh, that that, uh, are, that, that uh, he tells tall tales, I suppose. But uh, it again, it's what also my father was saying. It's the feeling of that book, the, the uh, how he felt, uh, Graves felt about a time, about the people he was with. It's not so much 
the truth of the anecdotes he told. Okay, I, think I wanted to interject something that uh, um, I was reminded of by Rob's last remark. That it seems to me quite extraordinary that he he should have remembered things that happened when he was two and a half years old. This this is documented because he uh, he told the memories. The memories was of the room where my mother lay dying, and that that was she was dead the next year. So it would have to be when Rob was two and a half. The town was Belsano. But not the town with the trout. What was the name? Belfontaine or something? Oh, Belfont, yes. Belfont. In Center County. <laughs> I think it was in Spring Creek. There were trout in there. What happened? And very interesting. <laughs> Has nothing to do with memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> but <clears throat> trout, uh, the town council had passed a law for Belfont that nobody could fish inside the town limits. And this passed from ear to ear among the trout. They came down inside the town limits. <laughs> and then people saw them and began feeding them hamburgers. <laughs> so those trout did. Thirty years ago, they'd grown to enormous size. I don't know what they are now, but there were three or four uh, Hamburg heavens or, along the road, and they all subsisted on Hamburg for the trout. The trout <laughs> grew and multiplied. We'll take one more question, and then there's an announcement from Penn. Okay, over here. Could you stand up? So they could yeah, I oh, okay. and, um, and I wondered if I used them, would that be plagiarism? <laughs> she liked the word rained on and sunned on, and can she use them? Would that be plagiarism? Well, she liked the words rained on and sunned on. If she used them herself, would that be plagiarism? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, go right ahead. Might <laughs> give uh, Is Pamela Pierce a, here? I'll wrap a blue ribbon around them for you if you wish. <laughs> um, I, Pamela Pierce from Penn wanted to make an announcement. Is she here? Oh, Pam, okay. And then following this, there'll be a reception to which everyone's invited. And thank you very much. Thank you. I would like to bring to your. Can you hear me? Is that, that working? Uh, that Monday night, the 30th, Penn and the Fund for Free Expression will be holding a benefit called Forbidden Writers. These are readings from the work of foreign writers who have been refused entry into the United States under the ideological exclusion provisions of the Immigration and Nationality Act. The readers will be Carolyn Forche, John Irving, Arthur Miller, Susan Sontag and William Styron. The people reading, being read from are Julio Cortazar, Mahmoud Darwish, Dario Fo, got, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Pablo Neruda, and Angel Rama. It is Monday, April 30th at St. Peter's Church, Lexington and 54th Street. 
The admission is $15 to benefit the pen fund for free expression ideological the fund for free pen fund for free expression campaign against ideological exclusion. It is tax deductible and a champagne reception follows. These will be on the table as you go out with, with ticket details on here. Thank you.